Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everyone. We hope you had a great week. We are running out the door to dinner, so we're jumping right into this week's news stories ahead of our featured interview this week with Brad Feld, a longtime VC and a font of wisdom when it comes to lots of facets of the business, including board construction. That sounds boring, but... When the shit hits the fan, as is happening right now in the startup world, who is on your board and the decisions made together can mean life or death for a company. And that's exactly what we'll be talking about. But first, the news. Well, so much for that touching goodbye post to Sheryl Sandberg that Mark Zuckerberg posted just nine days ago, when after a 14-year run at Facebook, now Meta Platforms, Sandberg said she was resigning from her post as COO. At the time, Zuckerberg called Sandberg's planned departure the end of an era, and he spoke glowingly of her as an amazing person, leader, partner, and friend. Today, the Wall Street Journal reports, for the second time since Sandberg resigned, that Facebook has been investigating Sandberg since at least the fall for possible misuse of corporate resources. Under review, whether she had Facebook employees engaged in work that supported her Lean In Foundation, whose mission it is to foster women's leadership and workplace inclusion. Whether she pulled Facebook staffers into the writing and promotion of her second book, Option B, which focused on overcoming the sudden death of her husband in 2015. And finally, whether she diverted the time and attention of Facebook employees to her upcoming wedding this summer. Jeez, what a jerk! except that she doesn't come off that way in this report. Indeed, we don't know who's leaking details of this internal investigation to the Wall Street Journal, but if the, quote, people familiar with the matter are trying to destroy her reputation, they're doing a lousy job. It's not as if industry watchers think Sandberg is an unimpeachable business leader, not after so many scandals at Facebook, and not after a separate bombshell report that was leaked in April that Sandberg may have tried to wield her influence to twice stop tabloid stories about a former boyfriend. Bobby Kotick, himself the controversial CEO of Activision Blizzard. These newest leaks just make Facebook look vindictive and petty and borderline absurd. Let's face it, given the terribleness associated almost daily with the company, it's pretty hard to get worked up about Sandberg planning her wedding on company time. Further, both the Lean In Foundation and Sandberg's books, all of which are about empowering women and the proceeds of which were reportedly given to Lean In, were really good for Facebook's brand when it most needed some softening. Right now, Sandberg doesn't look like a sloppy executive. She appears to be the victim of a smear campaign, and if Facebook isn't careful, she'll end up smalling like a rose while the company, often stuck in the muck, seems to seep deeper in it. Way back in 2018, Kathy Wood of ARK Investments made a bold call. Tesla would zoom to $4,000 per share by 2023. Three years later, her prediction came true. Now, Wood is sticking her neck out again. In a note published on Wednesday, ARK said that it is betting that Zoom's stock price will rise by more than 1,750% to $1,500 per share by 2026. The markets were unmoved. Zoom is currently trading at $109 per share. Its highest level following ARC's announcement was just $116 per share. As Business Insider summarizes in an article today, ARC's thesis is based on research published by Slack that found that employees forced to return to offices full-time experienced steep decline in work-life balance and satisfaction. 
Arc believes that because of the tight labor market, hybrid workplaces will continue to increase, and companies that have demanded that their employees return to the office will relent. We believe current pivots back to in-office mandates could be part of a trial-and-error process for employers that will increase the percent of workers in hybrid remote working models during the next five years, Arc said. Across all of ARC's ETFs, Tesla and Zoom Video are now running neck-and-neck for the title of top holding. As with Tesla, ARC has published an open-source model that allows investors to tinker with its assumptions. But observers undeniably have reason to doubt ARC's investment acumen. After all, since the beginning of the year, the Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF, ticker SARC, which delivers the inverse performance of ARC's flagship fund, is up 67% while ARC's stock price has fallen 57%. Still, we see a lot to like about the Zoom pick. First, we work from home and love it, even though our little dog Brody makes way too much noise. Second, we just filled up our gas tank to the tune of $107. And third, I'm sorry, working in an office is overrated. CEOs like Elon Musk and Jamie Dimon, who have predicted the end of civilization if workers don't spend 40 or more hours in a cubicle, look like fools. So, Kathy Wood, you have our attention. Let's see what Zoom can do. Up next, Connie's interview with Brad Feld of Foundry Group. But first, a word from our sponsor. Start raising your round in as little as three weeks with Seed Invest the equity crowdfunding platform where high-growth startups like Wink, NowRx, and Heliogen fund their future. Apply in minutes, get hands-on support from terms to legal filings, activate your audience as you raise, and engage with 600,000 platform investors. Find out more and apply today at go.seedinvest.com slash VC. That's go. Seedinvest.com slash VC. And now our interview with Brad Feld of the Boulder, Colorado based venture firm Foundry Group. Feld has just republished a second and thoroughly updated edition of a book that he co wrote back in 2013 and that a lot of founders and newer investors might want to pick up right now called Startup Boards, A Field Guide to Building an Effective Board of Directors, and available for pre-order right now on Amazon, it covers a lot of territory, from whether you should be the chair of your own board, to managing independent seats, to how to, cough, cough, remove a director. Given that boards are dealing with quite a bit of chaos suddenly, and emotions are likely high, we thought you might enjoy the calming wisdom of Feld. Here's that conversation now. Brad, I always love talking to you and it's been too long. I think it's been probably a little bit over a year or was it in 2020? I can't remember. Time just goes by. (laughs) It really does. It's really crazy. So you've got a second edition of your book coming out on startup boards. Great timing because I think boards are going to have to figure out new ways to get along now that a lot of investors who've never been through a downturn are facing one for the first time. But first, tell me a little bit about this book, when you published the first version of this, and what is different about this updated version? The first version was published in 2013. And it was during a period of time where I was writing a bunch of books about startup 
stuff, right? I wrote the Venture Deals book, and then I wrote Startup Communities. That came out in 2012. I wrote a book with my wife, Amy, called Startup Life, which was how to deal with being partners with an entrepreneur and how to be an entrepreneur with a partner who wasn't an entrepreneur. And I felt like an important part of that whole narrative was to include a book on boards and board of directors and how boards work. And if I time travel back to 2013, there were plenty of people who had board experience, but there were starting to become lots of new VCs who didn't have much board experience or any. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of bad board experience over a long period of time. I learned how to be on boards in the 1990s pre-internet bubble. And then I learned an enormous amount in the downturn about the responsibility of the boards for both private and public companies as we went through all kinds of crazy shit. And then 2004 onwards, there really wasn't a lot of focus on healthy, constructive, thoughtful boards in the venture landscape. And as entrepreneurship started to accelerate again, in the late 2007, 2008, 2009 time period. Of course, at the large company level, there was a huge amount of malfeasance and bad governance and board issues coming out of the financial crisis or in the financial crisis. But there still just wasn't a lot of conversation about how to build an effective board from an entrepreneur perspective. And if anything, I was starting to hear the opposite, which was this idea that you don't need a board. Or if you're an entrepreneur, you should delay having a board as long as possible. Or the board's just trying to take control away from you. Some of it was cliche, but a lot of it was just entrepreneurs who'd had experiences with boards that weren't effective. That was the first book. If you move forward to today, in some ways, two things have happened. One is we've had this, until recently, this incredible positive market in entrepreneurship and venture specifically, where there's been huge value created. There have been a handful of cases where there's been really bad board governance that resulted in cataclysmic failures of companies. But there's also been this narrative, especially amongst companies, that they don't really need boards. And more and more entrepreneurs approaching things from the standpoint of not just not taking advantage of the benefit of a board, especially outside board members, but this whole notion of what a role of a board really is and how it can be helpful to a fast-growing company, just in my mind was not lost, but in a lot of areas and a lot of aspects of entrepreneurship was being ignored. And some of that, by the way, again, was because of this positive momentum where you weren't having to deal with a lot of difficult and challenging things on a continual basis. The other thing, which when I reflect on the first version of the book, really shows how dated that first version of the book was, even though it was 2013. We had a bunch of sidebars from experienced board members and entrepreneurs. And these are two to eight paragraph essays about a particular topic woven throughout the book. And then we had a bunch of quotes, you know, we quoted a bunch of people. And almost all of them were from men, almost all of them. And when we started working on this book, we decided consciously to refactor it. And it's now about 50-50 male-female, and we've added a lot of non-white board member commentary in it as well. So we tried to make it much more accessible, not just to today's entrepreneur, today's board member, but also aspiring entrepreneurs and aspiring board members through the use of much clearer voices rather than 
frankly, a bunch of middle-aged white guys prognosticating about how boards should work. I love that you focused on this to more reflect how boards look today and increasingly how they should be looking. When you talk about people not focusing so much on boards or downplaying their significance, I wonder how much of that really had to do with the VCs themselves who were just overloaded with investments. I wonder if founders began to feel in this very long bull run that they really only had so much time with their VCs anyway, because their VCs were on 17 boards. Do you think it was partly the role of founders who maybe weren't taking board seriously enough, but also VCs who maybe were not fulfilling their real fiduciary obligation here? Absolutely. Uh, And I think it was a couple of other things as well. So there is no question that VCs being overloaded with boards and not being able to deal with, or in some cases, not even really understand what their role is, because you had a lot of VC board members who ended up on a number of boards, but didn't have a lot of board experience prior Mm -hmm. to being on a lot of boards, including a lot of VCs who were ex-operators who had the experience of whatever their boards were. But There's no doubt that a part of it was overload on the part of the VC. Part of it was a frame of reference that has been promulgated throughout the entrepreneurial landscape of the, I don't want to say control dynamic because it feels too trite when I say it that way, but the dynamics between your investor, your VC, and the founders and the idea of being founder-controlled boards or Mm -hmm. where the founders have super voting rights or the founders don't really have responsibility to a board per se. Mm -hmm. So you had some of that and there are multiple places where that emerged and then grew. Then, especially at mid and later stages, you had a lot of investors, especially in the last couple of years, that just didn't take board seats, right? They put big checks into companies, but didn't take board seats. You had the same thing at the early stage. You had this massive proliferation of companies, some of it from the pre-seed and accelerator phenomena, but just the globalization of entrepreneurship. And many of those very early stage financings didn't set up board structures through the seed round or even the series A round in some cases, or the board structures they set up were very lightweight in terms of the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And then I think on top of all of that, and it's a piece that is even missing from this part of the narrative is the board is not your VC and your founders. The most impactful part of boards, especially in fast growing and mid-stage companies are outside directors. And I've experienced over many, many years, uh, huge value from outside directors at early stages, especially with first-time entrepreneurs, but also with experienced entrepreneurs that have certain areas of expertise that they're lacking or weaknesses. We've all got strengths and weaknesses where they can augment some of that with another CEO on their board who's an outside director, who's a peer, and they hear things from that hear differently than they hear from their VC investor. And the dynamics around the board table of having a mix of the founders, the CEO, the VCs and outside directors and having balance between them, really being able to help companies navigate, again, both hyper growth, but also the ups and downs that invariably happen in a way where it's not a share the workload type dynamic, but it's one where the CEO gets to build another team. And it's a really wonderful line I heard from Jeff Lawson at Twilio a long time ago in an interview that we did, where he basically said, I get to build two teams. One team is my leadership team, and the other team is my board. 
And yeah, I report to the board, but if I have that as a potential team, why wouldn't I build a super high functioning board that can help me and the business be successful? You know, it's so interesting. I don't think enough about board construction at the early stage as it relates to outside directors. I guess I didn't know that that was even an option for many founders. Do you think that they know that that's an option? And and is it hard to make room for an outside director when obviously the founder and maybe his or her co-founders want to be directors? And of course, the VCs want board seats and you don't want to have seven board members from the get-go. How do you figure that whole piece out? And, and again, how often do you think that early stage companies have outside directors? We have a bunch of stuff about that in the book. The first edition was written by me and a friend, Mahendra uh, Ramsinghani. We've been friends for a long time. And we added a third co-author, Matt Blumberg. Matt currently runs a company called Bolster, which is a talent marketplace for executives funded by uh, High Alpha, Us, USV, and Costanoa. And prior to that, Matt, for almost 20 years, ran a company called Return Path, I was on his board with Fred Wilson at USV and Greg Sands, originally at Sutter Hill, now at Costa Noa. And so Matt added a lot of content to this book from an entrepreneur's perspective. And one of the things Matt, I think, did extraordinarily well with Return Path and is doing very, very well, again, with Bolster, is even at the early stages, he had a board that was a diverse board. It was not a VC board. It was not a founder board. So Matt has something he calls the rule of one. And his view is that at every financing round, if you add a VC, you should always add an outside director. Hmm. So if you start off and there's two founders and they each have a board seat and you add a VC and the VC takes a board seat, you should add an outside director at that stage. You do another round and maybe you have two new VC investors, but only one takes a board seat. You should add a second independent director at that stage. Okay. And that's how Matt's always approached it. And I think he does a really good job of laying out why in the book. From my frame of reference, the number of times where I find myself investing in a company at a Series A or even a Series B stage, you know, no longer pre-seed or seed, I'm not the first VC investor, and there might already be a VC investor on the board. The number of times there's an outside board seat that's empty blows my mind. Because a lot of times the VCs will structure the board so that there's an independent director. That's pretty common. And a lot of times that independent seat just goes unfilled. That is really wild that the VCs are making room for an independent director and then it's going unfilled because they can't figure out who the right fit is or they're worried. No one one prioritizes it. And the, the VCs might do it. It might be part of the negotiation between the total number of board seats to get you to an odd number of board seats. There's lots of different reasons it ends up there being an independent director. There is, by the way, one very important reason to have at least one independent director on the board. And you alluded to at the beginning, we're about to go through a cycle in the market. I expect it will be prolonged. Yeah. Everybody gets to have their own view on what prolonged means. Mm-hmm. But if you have situations where you have down rounds, you have recapitalizations, you have sales of companies below the liquidation preference, even you just have as simple as inside rounds, having an independent director on the board is a very significant positive governance characteristic. There are lots of cases where it's nice to have. There are some cases where if you don't have it, you actually create a real problem for yourself in terms of the downstream legal dynamics around things like the business judgment rule and what you can rely on in those kinds of financings and the threshold levels of those things. 
that's independent from this notion that you get lots of other benefits from that independent director other than just governance in a down round, because a lot of times in a down round, you get a lot of challenges between the founders and the investors, and you may have conflict between investors and investors. And if you have somebody or multiple people in independent seats, they can play a very different role when emotions flare or when there's real tension or when there's real animosity between people because they have different incentives. I know plenty of founders who are good at navigating that. I know plenty of VCs that are good at navigating that. I know many more VCs who are not good at navigating it. I know many more founders who are not good at navigating that. It's mm-hmm. It gets hard. And when you have a couple more people sitting around the board table who don't get wrapped up in all of those emotional dynamics, oftentimes makes much better discussion, much better decisions. And then Brad, you mentioned, I think, having an odd number of board members. Is that something else that you advise or is that something that's a common knowledge or is it more the case founders get an outsized say in some cases? It's a fun one. It's a cliche. When I started joining boards in the mid-1990s, I didn't know anything being on a board because I hadn't. I mean, the way you learn about, really learn about being on boards is you're on boards. And when everything goes fine, then you don't really learn that much. It's when things don't get really screwed up. That's when you start to learn. But the cliche that I heard over and over again was always have an odd number board in case there's a vote. Mm -hmm. And the number of times in the last 30 years where the vote of the board members was the deterministic thing. And it was a 3-2 vote or a 4-3 vote or Mm -hmm. whatever. I can't think of a case where that was what was the deterministic driver. And so I, for a long time, have not viewed an odd number of directors as being key. What I've viewed instead is making sure you have balance between the founders the CEOs, the VCs, and the outside directors, and defining that balance as founders, clearly. There are some founders who say, what balance means to me is we control the board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's okay. As an investor, we made an investment in a company, and the founders were very, very clear why they wanted to control the board based on their experience with a previous company mm-hmm. and what happened. And when they walked me through it, my response is, I understand. I get it. On the other hand, what that necessitated in the financing documents is we asked for a couple of control provisions that we wouldn't have normally asked for that were part of the preferred control provisions in case something happened that we were worried about. I said, here are the three things I'm worried about, that if you control the board, I can't do anything about them. And I want to be in a position where if I am of a different frame of reference than you, I can do something about it. And we came up with a way to solve those problems, right? So it's talking that through early on. And it's another thing Matt suggests, which is this idea that you're not trying to create this acrimonious control dynamic through the number of board seats, because a lot of times those control dynamics get defined in the financing documents, not in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. What you're trying to do is set a tone for how you're going to interact with each other especially knowing that there's going to be lots of things that don't go as planned. I've never been involved in a successful startup that went as planned. Mm -hmm. And all the ones I've been involved in that failed certainly didn't go as planned because I wouldn't have invested in the first place if I thought it was going to fail. But understanding how you're going to engage with each other and being able to do that constructively and defining it as part of what a board looks like is important. Last comment on this, and I'm thinking of a longtime entrepreneur that I worked with for a number of companies, Paul Babarian. 
And Paul actually in a multi-page document that described his expectations for all board members, whether they were management, founder, independent, or VC. And whenever somebody joined the board, he would send it to the whole board and they'd talk about it at the next board meeting. The very first time he wrote it, I remember thinking it felt a little pedantic to me. But what I found was it was really powerful. You know, it had to be a multi-page document. It could be three slides or whatever. But just calibrating amongst everybody sitting around the board table saying, yep, here's my commitment. Here's how I'm going to behave. And if I'm not behaving this way, call me out. The same way you would with a management team, right? If somebody on the management team is not subscribing to the norms of that management team, the CEO can always fire that person or somebody else in the leadership team, if it's a well-functioning leadership team, should be able to call that person out and say, hey, that's not constructive. That's not helpful. Right. Or that's something I'm not okay with. Again, if it's outside whatever the norms are, if you don't define the norms, then you can't even have that conversation. Right, right. You can't really over-communicate, it sounds like. So Brad, I did want to talk to you about what is happening right now. I feel like we're at this part of the market shift where we're still reading about big funding rounds happening. From what I understand, you scratch the surface and you are continuing to see companies raising, but there's much more structure involved in these deals. So it sounds like a flat round, but it might actually be offering the VCs higher liquidation preferences than we've seen in years and other punitive sounding deal terms. I'm just wondering, what is your advice to startup founders right now? Is it better to raise a flat round with all this stuff packed into term sheets or is it better to do the down round? My knee-jerk reaction is better to do the down round, get it over with. Over time, there'll be less stigma associated with it if enough people do it. But I also don't really know the long-term ripple effects or ramifications of doing both. I have a very strong belief from many years of doing both, right? Contortions to try to have a multiple liquidation preference dynamic with mm-hmm. lots of extra features and warrants and all kinds of protections at one end to the other end of just saying, okay, here's what reality is in terms of the financing. Let's just do it clean. Mm-hmm. I have a very strong belief that just doing it clean, resetting whatever the valuation is, resetting the preferences appropriately so everybody's aligned, dealing with reality at the time that you need to raise money is much, much better for mm-hmm. companies. There are exceptions. It's not an absolute rule. And the thing I think that is the warning for entrepreneurs is to make sure you know what you're optimizing for in the context of whatever financing you're doing. Are you optimizing for survival of the company? Are you optimizing for capital to get you to another financing round? Are you optimizing for holding the line on what you know is an irrationally high valuation, but bringing in more money for that, hoping that the market will get better and you'll grow into or exceed your valuation? Mm -hmm. And just knowing what the risks associated with each are and separating the financing from how you're operating and executing the business. I think this is a thing that gets mixed up in this all the time, and especially you hear it now, it's already become cliche, right? It's less than 30 days. And the idea that you should have 24 months of capital in the bank has become a cliche. It's fine. It's a good rule of thumb. But does that mean 24 months of capital with your aspirational revenue goal? Does that mean 24 months of capital with no revenue growth? Does that mean 24 months of capital net of debt or including the venture debt that you've already raised, that you've already spent? What does it mean, right? So understanding what your financing is for and what you're trying to do with it 
is so much more important than trying to hold the line on your valuation per se. And in the end, if you're at the starting point of that, right, you're doing a financing just to survive and the equity in the business is currently not worth anything, it's way better to just deal with reality. So you have a chance of being able to raise additional capital going forward. And the people who are working for the business going forward are the ones that are accruing the value. At the other end of the spectrum, if you have a very specific reason why you're putting more money on the balance sheet, but your business is well-funded and you're operating reasonably well, but there has just been a market adjustment in terms of what people are willing to pay, different thought process. And Brad, also any advice to newer VCs who've not been in a situation like this, maybe not been in a pay-to-play situation where the board essentially has to vote to either support the company or get meaningfully wiped out if you don't participate. Is there any advice that you can offer to newer investors? Yeah, well, lots, but maybe a couple of quick ones. One is don't lose your shit. Just know that this is business and this is part of the dynamic of business. And if you're an early stage investor and you have limited capital because you have a smaller fund and everything's been working up to this point, recognize that there's going to be a bunch of stuff that doesn't work. And that's just part of how things go. So number one, take a deep breath. Second, recognize that every time you make an investment decision, you're really making a new investment decision. We've been in this zone where it was a couple of years ago, all of a sudden somebody, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, if you don't play your pro rata in every financing round, you're missing out on huge upside. I'm early stage investor. And then a company raises more money at a higher round. I play my pro rata. Then it raises money at a higher round. I play my pro rata. And then, you know, it raises at a really, really high round. I play my pro rata, but I don't have enough money. So I raise an SPV to play my pro rata, like da, 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 da. And What happened was people sort of blindly were making these decisions, assuming that the valuations of these companies would always increase. And especially in turbulent times, you have to deal with a sunk cost fallacy. Too many people fall into, well, I'm going to do this investment because I want to save my last money in. Well, question number one, do you believe in the company? Yes or no? If no, why would you invest any more money in it? If yes, do you believe in the team? Do you believe in the duh? You know, are you really committed to continuing to drive through the business? And it's not a judgment on whether people do that or not, but recognize that, especially if you have limited capital in your funds or you're an early stage player versus a, a mid or late stage player, it's not just the terms that matter to you. It's what you think you're going to get ultimately from the new dollars that you invest in the company. And then the last is be cliche, I guess. Elbows get sharper in these scenarios, right? When everything's going, people are a lot more relaxed. Terms are a lot easier to negotiate. People don't ask for stuff. When it goes the other direction, all of a sudden, everybody starts worrying about their downside protection and their risk, and they negotiate for every last thing they can get. If this is your first time through a down part of the cycle, know that that's coming and try not to misallocate your emotion to people's behavior because the person or the people that generally get caught in the middle are the people running the company mm-hmm. who might be the founders or might not be the founders and if you're playing a long-term game that includes potentially investing in people in more than one company over their lifetime how you behave right now is going to matter a lot and the number of investors who blow up their reputations because they behave in a difficult financing in a way that's acrimonious, blaming the entrepreneurs or blaming the founders, creating a narrative where they were the victim or where something happened that was done in a way 
even though the macro dynamics have reversed in a significant way, of mm-hmm. course, people, blah, 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 should have anticipated it, whatever that is. Like, you know, it's not that you have to be nice and kind and friendly and everybody loves you, but just be rational mm-hmm. and recognize that this is part of equity investing and part of venture capital and part of entrepreneurship. And it's not that everything goes up and to the right. And with yet another cliche, right? right. It, it's not that way all the time. And when things become turbulent, the character of the people involved really shows. And if you're playing a long game, make sure your character shows well. Two quick questions. Obviously, people's reputations mean everything in this business. And it'll be interesting to see what happens now because there's obviously so much more transparency into everything that everybody does at every moment of time. And so it does seem like it's going to be very tricky for a lot of people to Sure. Connie, I think your world's a lot more fun than it was a decade ago because (laughs) right, right. I can see the the stories are richer and recognize that everybody's talking their own book in our business. I don't think this is news to anyone anymore. People are promoting themselves, but press the next level down and try to make sure you understand what's really going on when you're engaging, not you, Connie, but one who is engaging in any of these situations. And maybe another part of that is recognize that people have lots of different pressure. If I'm an investor, and I just put out a whole bunch of money at 50 times 2023 revenue, which all of a sudden does not look so smart. I may have different pressures on me than somebody who has been very disciplined about what they're willing to pay or has benefited from a bunch of those financing because they were a seed stage investor, but didn't invest in the next round, had very big markups. But all of a sudden that seed stage investor might not be looking at those on paper markups the same way knowing that the valuations are going to retreat in the next financing round. And so their behavior is going to change, you know, come at it with a wider viewpoint than just what's on the surface. And so last question, Brad, relatedly, how do founders deal with this? Because like you said, there are people on their cap table with very different incentives, financial pressures. Is your advice to offer one size deal to everyone? The terms are the same? That it- well, I would say in a down round mm-hmm. or flat round type financing, a phrase that entrepreneurs are going to start hearing from their outside counsel in every financing is something called a rights offering. And in a rights offering, you offer whatever the terms are of the deal, mm-hmm. you offer all of your accredited investors the ability to invest on those terms. Okay. And if you're doing a flat or down round without a rights offering, you're getting bad legal advice. And there's two types of rights offerings. There's a pro rata rights offering, which means that everybody can play their pro rata. And then there's an open rights offering where everybody can invest whatever amount they want. So if my pro rata is $100,000, but I'm excited, I want to invest a million dollars on the new terms, I can invest a million dollars. But as the entrepreneur... The idea that you're somehow cutting special deals in down round situations, favoring some investors over others, those are major no-nos. And again, this is playing it clean. It's a little bit more legal work to do a rights offering, but on the tail end of the rights offering, you've done it by the book and nobody can criticize you. And when you're worth a whole lot more money sometime in the future, there isn't somebody that says, wait a second, I didn't get a chance to participate in that financing. You don't want to have to deal with that. Good. I feel like I should know this stuff, but I haven't had these conversations in so long either. I forgot what what all these terms mean. It would be great if I didn't remember them either, but reality. Brad, great to reconnect again. Startup boards. I'm sure people are going to be happy to pick this up right now. So thank you for republishing this. Connie, as always, it's great to talk and holler anytime. I will. Take care, Brad. 
That's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brad Feld. I really did. Special thanks to our advertiser for this week's episode, Seed Invest. Have a great weekend, and we will see you soon.